0: Welcome back to Pod Save the World. This is a special bonus episode. Later this week on The Normal Time, I'm going to release an interview with Senator Mark Warner, who is the vice chairman of the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence. We're going to talk about what the committee does, the Russia investigation, and a lot of the issues around Chairman Nunez you've been reading about and Trump's alleged ties and connections with Russia. But in addition to that, I wanted to talk about what happened in Syria last week, Uh, not just Trump's military strikes, but the evolution of the crisis from 2001 till today. So I got on the phone earlier with uh, Colin Call, who is a Middle East expert. He was Vice President Biden's National Security Advisor, and it was a Middle East expert at the Pentagon. And we talked through you know, how we got here today, all the background, all the context. So I think you guys will appreciate it. It is a thoughtful, mostly nonpartisan look at a very, very challenging situation in Syria. With me today is Colin Call, who from October 2014 to January 2017 was Deputy Assistant to the President and National Security Advisor to the Vice President. And from February 2009 to December 2011, Colin was the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for the Middle East at the Pentagon. So there are very few people with more experience in working the problem of Syria and the broader challenges in the region. than Colin, and he is now a professor at Georgetown University's Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service. So Colin, thank you so much. Welcome to the pod. It is great to have you.
1: Great to be with you, Tommy.
0: All right. So let's talk Syria. I think everyone is focused on President Trump's decision to launch this cruise missile attack last week. But I was hoping to start where closer to the beginning, the origins of the Syrian civil war, because I think understanding how we got here is un- important to understanding what he did. So most people point to December 2010 as the origin of the broader Arab Spring. That was when a Tunisian fruit vendor who had been humiliated by the police lit himself on fire in protest, literally. And that self immolation led to protests across Tunisia and across the region. The protests in Syria started in March of 2011, when some teenagers in the city of Daraa, who had spray-painted slogans on a school wall were arrested and tortured. Demonstrators took to the streets to protest their treatment. Government forces shot at them. This led to more protests and calls for Assad to step down. So, Colin, initially, I think people were hopeful about these protests. Syria is very different from Egypt, but there was hope that Assad might be deposed in a popular uprising like Mubarak. And even at the time when you know the conflict dragged on, there were times when it seemed like the momentum was firmly against Assad. Do you think that without intervention of outside forces, Assad might have been gone today? Did you share optimism at the beginning of this civil war?
1: Yeah, no, your lead-in is is totally right. You know, uh, the protest started in mid March. It was in the context, uh, you know, against the backdrop of demonstrations across the entire Arab world. You know, you had Tunisia and Egypt, like you mentioned, but. You know, in mid-March, you were also uh, seeing uh, uprisings in Libya. You were seeing protests in Yemen and Bahrain and elsewhere. And because the revolutions in Tunisia and Egypt have been largely peaceful, I I do think there was hope uh that uh basically other dictators could be pushed uh aside uh and that was certainly i think the hope of a lot of us in the obama administration uh, at the outset of the uprisings uh in syria um but that said uh I, it got dark pretty early i mean as yeah. you mentioned uh, you know, this kid, uh, these kids, you know, spray paint, graffiti uh, in Dara. It sets off these protests. There's violence uh, uh, right off the bat. I think Assad, uh, you know, seeing what happened to Mubarak and seeing what happened in Tunisia, was pretty dead set uh, against it happening in Syria. And so he escalated to violence a lot earlier uh, than a lot of the other uh, uh, leaders in the region. Uh, and it started in motion this kind of vicious cycle in which there'd be protests, then the regime uh, would uh, engage in violence, and the protesters would shift their demands from reform to regime change, the regime would engage in more violence, and it just kind of spiraled. Uh, And by the summer, uh, we were starting to see the early signs uh, of an insurgency. Yeah.
0: And And one thing you hear a lot about when people are talking about Syria is sectarian violence or fighting between Sunnis and Shiites. Before the Syrian civil war, in 2011, the country was 60% Sunni Arabs, 12% Alawites, and then I think 9% Kurds, 9% Christians. The ruling class in Syria, including Assad and his his top cronies and military aides, are Alawites, who are basically Shiites. Can you talk a bit about how sectarianism has contributed to the war and the many ways it has you know led Syria to become a proxy war?
1: Yeah, it's a great question, because, you know, initially uh, the demonstrations were not oriented around a sectarian uh, motivation. Uh, There were folks from all different faiths uh, who came out. Uh, you'll recall, you know, in the summer of, of 2011, August, uh, in particular, that's when Obama calls for uh, Assad to go, uh, basically saying for the sake of the Syrian people, the time has come for Assad to step aside. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time, you know, Obama wasn't really calling for forceful regime change, certainly wasn't saying that the United States should impose it. But I think he, he was sharing the hope that a lot of us had, which would be that the regime would basically, uh, you know, be pushed aside by this, uh, the, this, this uprising that really had a, a, a nationalist uh, character, not a sectarian one. But as the violence got worse and worse, uh, it really took on a sectarian dimension. And, and as you know, you know, Assad and his family are uh, are from the Alawite uh, minority in Syria, which is basically an offshoot of uh, Shia Islam. Um, but most of Syria's population are actually Sunni Arabs. There's also a, a sizable uh, 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 number of Kurds in northern uh, Syria. But anyway, the Alawites, uh, you know, have basically stuck by the regime. And as the kind of tit-for-tat Cycle between the regime and protesters, and the regime and rebels and insurgents uh, uh, went on and on. Uh, Alawites basically clung, uh, you know, clung to the regime uh, out of out of a sense of security that that if the regime fell uh, and Sunni Arabs took over, that there would be reprisals, retribution, kind of genocide against Alawites, basically. Um, and so, you know, the, it, as we see in a lot of these conflicts, even if you kind of start out with a with a with a country that sees itself all as one people, once the violence starts, uh, it it can descend into uh, pretty nasty sectarianism pretty quickly, and that's that's certainly what happened in Syria. Yeah.
0: So okay, so Syria spirals into this awful civil war, as you noted in August of 2011. Obama and a number of European leaders said publicly that Assad has to go. It didn't take long for Washington and, and the world really to start talking about ways to intervene, particularly how the U.S. could intervene. One thing you heard about a lot was that we should have armed the moderate opposition. Could you talk a little bit about what that entails and what some of the risks and challenges are inherent in that course of action?
1: Sure. I mean, I think we should, you know, it, it, from the outset, Syria was kind of an environment in which a lot of external actors uh, were involved. Obviously, the Iranians had a lot of stake because uh, they were allies with Assad and counted on a on, uh, relationship uh, with uh, Syria to basically be a conduit uh, for Iran to provide weapons to Hezbollah. Uh, the Saudis, knowing how important uh, Assad was uh, to, uh, to the Iranians, uh, you know, poured weapons in. Uh, the Qataris and the Turks did the same thing. Uh, the Russians had a lot involved uh, at stake here because of their military uh, equities in Syria. So I say all of that because from the very beginning, uh, external actors were heavily involved uh, in the Syrian civil war. And so the question really was uh, for uh, President Obama, especially starting in 2012, is whether, um, you know, the United States, uh, whether the administration should, itself provide, uh, you know, weapons to uh, the Syrian opposition to to encourage regime change. Um, I, wasn't, I wasn't, you know, privy to uh, that debate. I had left the DOD uh, by that time, but obviously there's lots of accounts of how, you know, people like CIA Director Petraeus and Hillary Clinton, who was Secretary of State at the time, were pushing for arming, uh, arming the rebels. I will say that, um, you know, during that debate and the debate about the opposition uh, after 2012, Obama, you know, worried about the fact that we didn't really know who these guys are. I think for your right. listeners to keep in mind, a lot of our intelligence focused on Syria prior to the Arab Spring was understandably focused at the Syrian regime and the Syrian military, because those were who, who our adversaries were. We didn't actually know a lot about uh, a lot of the folks who ended up being uh, the armed opposition in Syria, and Obama was, was afraid that if we you know, dumped a bunch of weapons into into the hands of groups we didn't have a lot of confidence in. They would inevitably find their way into the hands of extremists like al-Qaeda or the, or the group that became uh, known as the Islamic State. And proof of that was that when the Saudis, the Turks, the Qataris, and others dumped a bunch of weapons on the opposition, a lot of those weapons did find their, hands, right. uh, their way into the hands of extremists. So it was quite risky. I think the other thing that the president... Didn't really understand from, propon- uh, you know, as it related to those who were advocating uh, for aiding the opposition was exactly what their theory of the case was. I mean, everyone agreed that you couldn't provide so much assistance to the opposition that you led to the military defeat of the regime. Because if you did that, then you'd kind of have, you know, Iraq 2003 or Libya 2011 all over again. You'd create this vacuum that extremist groups like uh, al-Qaeda would fill. So you didn't want to provide so much assistance that you led to the military defeat of the regime, which meant you had to just dial it up. You had to calibrate it, you know, incrementally escalate. And then the president would ask, okay, well, tell me, How do I get Assad to step aside, given that Assad is, you know, for him to step aside, that's an existential decision. How do you get a guy to make an existential decision based Mm -hmm. on incremental uh, escalation? It It just didn't make any sense. So there was really kind of no theory of victory. And I think Obama worried that it would just be pouring a lot of weapons into an environment in which everybody else was already pouring more weapons and escalate the conflict. And the last thing I would say is... All of that said, it's actually a myth that Obama never helped the opposition. I mean, right. I think that debate happened in 2012. Mm-hmm. But by 2013, uh, you know, just look at the press reporting. Uh, the United States is pretty actively helping the opposition in Syria. Right. So and you know what? It, it hasn't actually proved all that effective.
0: Yeah, that's a very good point and something that I think does get lost in this sometimes. So, And one you know, good example of how complicated it would be if the regime were to fall or if there were to be a military defeat is the stockpile of chemical weapons that Assad had. Just a quick snapshot. I mean, we estimated that Assad had 1,300 metric tons of chemical weapons distributed across 45 sites in Syria, which constituted the third largest stockpile in the world. Can you talk a bit about why chemical weapons are treated differently than normal weapons by the international community? Why they're so dangerous, and why we, you know, you've seen both Obama and now Trump talk about taking military action to deal with chemical weapons, even though there's a broader and much more costly in terms of the deaths of civilians, a conventional war going on in the backdrop.
1: Yeah, it's a great, it's it's a great question. Uh I mean, yeah, I mean you as you noted, uh Syria had something like 1300 tons. I think that's that's on the order of like 10 times as many chemical weapons as Saddam Hussein was wow. accused by the Bush administration of having before the Iraq war. So, it was a huge stockpile. Um I mean, really this goes back to, you know, World War 1 and the horrendous effects of chemical weapons during uh, uh during that war and the efforts through the Chemical Weapons Convention to outlaw these most barbaric uh of weapons. And I think, you know, the, the kind of the customary and formal laws of armed conflict that have emerged over, uh, you know, the, the the centuries recognize that all war is hell but try to put certain constraints on uh, the most hellish forms of warfare and chemical weapons are right up there and obviously they're, you know, they're lumped in with nuclear and biological weapons as weapons of mass destruction and there are a lot of, uh, you know, analysts who believe that, they, that, you know, chemical weapons are nearly as bad uh, as biological and nuclear weapons uh, uh, but uh, nevertheless uh, they're quite devastating, and, and you know, you saw that with thousands of people gassed uh, by Saddam Hussein uh, in the in the 1990s. You saw it uh, in the 1980s during the Iran-Iraq War when uh, thousands of Iranians uh, were uh, were gassed uh, by Saddam Hussein. So these are brutal weapons, and I think one of the things that you know. Barack Obama and Donald Trump are very different people in almost every way. Uh, But I think they both uh, recognize that uh, it would be a very, it would be a much more dangerous world if we sent the signal uh, that it was acceptable uh, for countries to use these weapons in warfare.
0: Yeah. And so that's a great sort of helpful explainer about why we got to this question of the red line. So in August of 2013, Obama first articulated the red line. I think the quote was, we have been very clear to the Assad regime but also do other players on the ground, that a red line for us as we start seeing a whole bunch of chemical weapons moving around or being utilized, that would change my calculus. I was on the NSC at that point. I was in the briefing room that day. And I think there's a couple of things that people don't remember about that comment, which well, the first was... We had intelligence that led us to believe that a chemical weapons attack could be imminent. And that comment was intended as a deterrent. Um, The other thing that gets lost is the moving around part of the statement. The concern wasn't just that Assad would gas his own people. It was that he might give chemical weapons to terrorist groups like Al-Qaeda or more likely Hezbollah to attack Israel or U.S. personnel in the region, etc. So oh, I'm sorry, the, the red line comment was August of 2012, not 2013, because then in August of 2013, the Syrian military launched a chemical weapons attack on a rebel-controlled neighborhood near Damascus, and that killed approximately 1,500 civilians, including more than 400 kids. So this brings us to this whole debate about what to do. Obama reportedly received a series of options to respond militarily. You weren't in the government at the time, which hopefully means you can speak a little more freely about this than those who were. But can you talk about what kind of options he might have been able to consider to respond
1: yeah, it's a it's a it's a great lay down, Tommy. And and I mean as you said, this really started a, a year before that attack, uh, in the summer of twenty twelve when, when Obama made that red line statement in the context of the intelligence that you that you pointed to. Um you actually get some small uses of chemical weapons uh, in the spring of 2013, and that leads uh, Obama to approve in mid-June, uh, doing more to help the Syrian opposition. Um, but yeah, I mean, the big kind of turning point for the president was that August 21st uh, attack outside of Damascus that killed all those people and all those kids. And, you know, the the president huddled uh, with his NSC three days after that to review the intelligence and, and some of the options. And at least according to the reporting, you know, basically, uh, you know, what he said was, quote, quote, when I raised the issue of chemical weapons last summer, that is during the Red Line Mm comment, this is what I was talking about. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, immediately the president authorized the Pentagon moving, um, uh, putting together kind of target packages and moving five Aegis destroyers into the eastern Mediterranean to be positioned to launch Tomahawk cruise missiles into uh, Syrian air bases. I think it's important, though, uh, for your listeners to recognize that the strike that Obama was contemplating um, was considerably larger than the one that we saw last week that the Trump administration uh, 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 initiated. Um, it, it probably contemplated dozens of targets, wow. a combination of air bases uh, and uh, regime command and control. Uh, and the idea was... Uh, Actually, not to go after the chemical weapons because there was a lot of concerns about collateral damage if you blew up these kind of plumes of chemical weapons, or that you could, you know, uh, make the chemicals uh, more prone to being uh, stolen. Um, There were a lot of reasons why you wouldn't go after the chemicals themselves. But what the administration thought was, you could go after the regime's ability to deliver those chemical weapons, um, you know, through the use of their aircraft and their air bases. So it was really a pretty widespread spectrum attack uh, that was being considered, and and frankly. Obama was primed to pull the trigger uh, until the kind of rug got pulled out from under him when the British Parliament uh, voted against uh, joining the United States in the attack on August 29th. And that really left, frankly, Obama kind of on a, on a political island uh, uh, where this attack would have you know, been seen as unilateral uh, in many respects, and it wasn't authorized by the U.N. There was no authorization for the use of military force by Congress. Uh, and this is a president who really believe that past presidents, frankly, uh, had been too keen to move forward without kind of the informed consent of the American people. Uh, and so he decided uh, against the advice of a lot of uh, a lot of his aides, frankly, uh, to take the issue to Congress. And I think that's that's pretty telling, uh, because even though a lot of Republicans in Congress had been clamoring, uh, demanding that, that Obama make sure that he go to Congress for permission if he was going to go after Assad, uh, in this context, they didn't want anything to do with it. And the calls were coming in kind of a 100 to 1 in congressional offices against, you know, approving uh, an attack on, on Syria. Um, so it, look, it left the, the president in a difficult position. Um, I mean, fortunately, uh, the Russians' basically came forward with a proposal um, uh, in early, uh, the second week of September, I think, of uh, 2013. And we negotiated an arrangement with them whereby they put pressure on Assad to declare his chemical stockpiles and hand them all over uh, for destruction. And And I know a lot of Obama's critics basically say, look, that guy was feckless. He didn't really, you know, he didn't really intend to strike Assad. Uh, but I think the Russians took him seriously, which is why they looked for a face-saving way out to get rid of all these weapons. And as you said, we ended up destroying about 1,300 tons. Um, He clearly had a small residual stockpile uh, left over because he used it to gas uh, some of his own people uh, on April 4th of this year. Um, But the situation would be far worse if he had that enormous stockpile still laying around.
0: You're listening to Pod Save the World. Stick around. There's more great show coming your way. Pod Save the World is brought to you by Blinds.com. Window treatments is one of those sad, soulless, adult-sounding terms for something necessary but boring as hell. Your blinds. You do not even think about them until you move or they break and there's light streaming into your bedroom at 630 in the morning and you are super pissed off. When they're right, everything in your home looks better. When they're wrong, everything in your home looks cheap. So let's be honest. Taking the time to pick out and buy blinds sounds expensive and boring, and installing them yourself is a non-starter. None of us are capable of doing that, and no self-respecting adult wants to figure it out. But Blinds.com makes it really easy for you. If you don't know what you want or if you don't know where to start, go to Blinds.com to get a free online consultation. You just send them pictures of your house and they send back custom recommendations from a professional for what will work with your color scheme, your furniture, and the rooms in your place. They'll even send you free samples to make sure that everything looks as good in person as it does online and every order gets free shipping. That's a big deal. And this is the best part. If you accidentally mismeasure or pick the wrong color or if you screw up, Blinds.com will remake your blinds for free. You heard that right. If you screw up, Blinds.com will remake your blinds for free. They've really made it easy for you. There is no excuse to leave up those mangled blinds that make your place look like the set from The Wire. That is a hell of a good TV show. For a limited time, get up to 20% off everything at blinds.com when you use promo code Crooked World. That's blinds.com, promo code Crooked World for up to 20% off everything faux wood blinds, cellular shades, roller shades, and more. That's blind.com, promo code Crooked World. Rules and restrictions apply. Pod Save the World is also brought to you by our friends at Postmates, the app that delivers you anything from anywhere. First time Postmates users should download the app and use our code CROOKED for $50 in Postmates delivery credit. That's pretty awesome, guys. Check out Postmates. Treat yourself. It's the best. Download the Postmates app and use our code CROOKED for $50 in Postmates delivery credit. Bringing us to what happened last week. Trump launched 59 Tomahawk missiles at a Syrian airbase that had been used to to launch this chemical weapons attack. Now that the dust has settled a bit, we're hearing more about what the targets were that were hit. It sounds like they may have damaged or destroyed some planes. They didn't take the runway out of commission. But the military options you described that Obama was considering, where we hit dozens of sites and took out the command and control of those aircraft, took out his ability to you know, use CW or probably a lot of conventional weapons, seems like a lot more significant in terms of pure military impact, right?
1: Yes, it would have been. I think the biggest difference between now and then is that there are now thousands of Russians crawling all over uh, Assad's air bases, uh, all, all over Syria. So nice. I think, you know, my, from, from the reporting, uh, Secretary Mattis, the Secretary of Defense, and H.R. McMaster, uh, uh, Trump's national security advisor, basically presented them with two options. One, which would have looked very much like the Obama strike. In fact, given how fast uh, they made the decision, it was less than three days between the attack and when uh, the Tomahawk missiles were launched into uh, that base in West uh, Central uh, Syria. Uh, you know, they had to basically take Obama's plan off the shelf. And they, that was presented to Trump, and it was viewed basically as too risky uh, because you'd end up killing a lot of Russians, and that could take you down a very dark uh, uh, path as it relates to escalation. And so they chose a kind of more more limited proportional response to go after the one base uh, that they launched uh, these attacks from. And, when, and as you mentioned, they did so, even then, they didn't destroy the whole base. They didn't destroy the runways, they, and they didn't go after the, the parts of the base where, there were about 100 Russian forces uh, there. Uh, they they went, over, they went after the other part of the base. They also gave the Russians about 90 minutes of warning uh, to get out of the way. Um, so they took, I think, smartly they took steps uh, to, uh, to limit escalation. But I think it really does speak to the dangers uh, going forward, which is maybe something we, we can talk about, but yeah. they, some of the dangers going forward If they choose to take the next step, that is, if Assad challenges them again and they feel like they have to go the next step up the escalation ladder, uh, things could get really uh, quite tricky very quickly.
0: So getting us today into this, strike, I think the day after questions are what I think Obama wrestled with the most with respect to Syria, which is to say you already have the Russians and the Syrians ramping up attacks on the same neighborhoods, the same civilians from the same bases. So was this attack designed to only deter chemical weapons use? Like, will there have to be another attack if they do that again? Are we going to intervene more? I mean, I guess my question is, you wrote this sobering piece in the Washington Post about the worst case scenarios, which is a, a war with Russia. I'm wondering what your take is on what happened last week, and if you could walk us through, you know, some of the slippery slope arguments that are inherent in any action like this.
1: Yeah, well, look, I mean, first of all, if, if at the very least, what the Trump administration did was try to send a signal to Assad that he shouldn't fire off any more chemical weapons. Right. Um, it's unclear whether, you know, that deterrent message will sink in. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. But I, I will tell you that the, the Trump administration has been incredibly confusing about the degree to which their objectives go beyond that. I mean, uh, you know, are the U.S. Uh, ambassador to the U.N., Nikki Haley, You know, said the other day uh, that the purpose was actually to create pressure on Assad for regime change. And then on the same day, Tillerson, the Secretary of State, comes out and says, No, 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 no. It was just about chemical weapons and nothing else as it relates to our posture, you know, toward the Syrian regime has changed. And then H.R. McMaster, the National Security Advisor, comes out and suggests that it's a mix of both, (laughs) that it's about chemical weapons, but it's also about putting uh, political pressure. And of course, you know, just for your listeners to remember, five days before. Assad's use of chemical weapons. Both Tillerson and Haley had said that the United States was not going to focus on Assad at all, yep, so that we right. could just focus on, on on ISIS. So it's not at all clear to me uh, that if the purpose of this strike is to send a message, the question is what is the message, and, uh, it, and it's it's pretty murky. And meanwhile, you have all of these voices, uh, you know, all of this pent up demand for the United States to jump in uh, to the war in Syria. You hear, you know, hawks in Congress, people like. Senator John McCain and Marco Rubio, who have already come out calling for Trump uh, to do more airstrikes, impose no-fly zones, uh, send more uh, aid to the opposition. Uh, you hear voices inside Syria saying, we're glad that you struck uh, Assad, but it's not nearly enough. Uh, you have to do more. Uh, you, you have regional allies like Turkey who have long dreamed of dragging us into a war with Assad saying that the strike was insufficient and that we need to do more with no fly zones, more strikes, et cetera. So the demand to do more uh is is going to be uh pretty significant and it's one of the things frankly that obama worried about as it relates to you know kind of slept, stepping on the slippery slope into this quagmire but the stakes of doing that are pretty high because think think about what the trump administration just did they basically said we didn't want to do a big attack because that would kill a bunch of russians so we did a little attack uh um but maybe that signals to assad and and russia that they're actually not willing to do a bigger attack and if right. that's the case maybe they won't be deterred and maybe they poke they poke and they prod and they test uh and they do another thing that provokes uh uh trump and challenges his manhood and suddenly the political pressure uh you know grows again for him to take the next step and he does do something that kills a bunch of Russians, or he puts a no-fly zone over Syria that creates incidents between American and Russian planes. And suddenly, you're in the thick of it with a nuclear-armed power. So things get very dangerous very quickly, which is, I think, one of the reasons why you know, Obama was so reticent about going down this road.
0: You're geeking out with me on Pod Save the World. More on the way. Pod Save the World is brought to you by The Great Courses. Now more than ever, it's important to stay informed and keep learning about what's happening in the world. That's why you should listen to Pod Save America and Pod Save the World, and it's also why you should sign up for The Great Courses Plus. You get unlimited access to over 8,000 engaging video lectures presented by award-winning experts. You can learn about whatever interests you. Politics, world history, science, economics, even how to play chess better or take better pictures. There's lots of cool stuff that you actually use. It's not just sitting around acting like a nerd like me. You're actually like figuring out how to do things better in your own life. New courses are added all the time. You can stream them from your smartphone, your tablet, your laptop, or your TV. You can start and pick up again from any device. Make your commute into something useful, guys. You don't have to refresh Twitter 3,000 times in a row like I do. The Great Courses Plus has a fascinating course that everyone should watch now. It's the Surveillance State, Big Data, Freedom, and You. A cybersecurity expert named Paul Rosenzweig explores our government's role in providing security from threats like digital espionage, hacking, while at the same time preserving our rights to privacy and freedom. I watched the course. It was a little bit scary at times, but a comprehensive and thoughtful look into like a really complicated set of issues. And I think, you know, this is something I've wrestled with over time. You guys heard me talk to Glenn Greenwald about this. It was a really compelling lecture. I recommend you check it out. It's a great primer for any you know future research you want to do. Sign up for The Great Courses Plus as a listener of Pod Save the World, and you'll get a free trial by using our special URL, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash crookedworld. Sign up now at the Great slash crooked world. That's the GreatCoursesPlus.com slash crooked world. You will not regret it. You will be smarter. It is interesting. Check it out. Trust me. I think the people who have worked on this as closely as you have, I, I hear sympathy in your voice for President Trump because this is a really hard problem and a really tough set of decisions. And and you know, I think the now what questions. I mean, you have people talking about increasing arming of the rebels, creating a humanitarian corridor to protect civilians, imposing a no fly zone over Syria. These are big, heavy military footprint, some of them, policy options. I'm wondering, like, what do you think is the path forward here? Can you help us understand why some of these are so difficult, these options?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there. look, let's let's kind of uh, think about the options that would directly go after Assad's capability to, you know, use his air force. You can either do standoff strikes, uh, you know, a lot more Tomahawk missiles into a lot more bases. Uh, The risk there is you're going to kill a bunch of Russians. Um, You could also uh, impose a no-fly zone over parts of northern or southern uh, Syria. Uh, That could also produce incidents uh, not only with the Syrian Air Force, but with the Russian Air Force. But even if it uh, didn't, uh, you'd have a lot of demands from the Pentagon, where I worked, to basically start by, uh, you know, uh, destroying all of Syria's air defense networks so that our planes can fly around safely. Um, uh, And even if we didn't decide to do that, the Russians and Assad, once we declared a no-fly zone, could start... Orienting their radars, uh, and you know they have some of the most advanced air defense systems in the world, especially the Russians. In Syria, they could start painting our, our aircraft, which would create incentives for us to blow those radars up, uh, and you could and you could get uh, incidents. And then there's just the opportunity costs. Uh, even if you could avoid escalation uh, somehow, there's an enormous opportunity cost. Keep in mind, we are already fighting a war in Syria. We're fighting a war against the Islamic <laughs> State in <Right>. northern Syria, <laughs> right. uh, and and the Pentagon would always tell us. If you want to enforce a no-fly zone, you're talking about hundreds of aircraft. And every one of those aircraft policing the no-fly zone is an aircraft that can't be bombing the Islamic State. Every, you know, intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance drone that we put over the no-fly zone is one we can't put over Raqqa, uh, uh, you know, ISIS's capital uh, in in Syria. Uh, And if the Russians and Assad uh, orient their air defenses in a way uh, that make it riskier for our pilots to fly in northern Syria, then that also complicates the counter-ISIS campaign. So it's not just the risks of escalation. It's also that, you know, I think the Trump administration has said defeating ISIS is the wolf closest to the shed. Well, there's all sorts of ways in which expanding this war against Assad could make that more difficult. So I am sympathetic uh, to uh, to the conundrum uh, uh, that, that they're in. Um, and I just think, you know, my experience in the Middle East is it's a lot easier to get into these things than to get out of them.
0: Yeah, it seems like that would be the lesson of the Iraq war that Washington would learn. But We haven't. Although, look, I mean, I don't want to sound glib. Like Anybody who's worked on Syria, who worked in the Obama administration and foreign policy is doing a lot of soul searching and probably will for a very long time about how we got to a place where hundreds of thousands of people died. There is just untold amounts of human suffering that are just beyond belief. What do you think the international community can do to come together to try to get to a political resolution in Syria to try to help people who are suffering? If people are listening, is there anything
1: they can do? Yeah, well, first, I mean, there's all sorts of charities that work uh, to provide humanitarian assistance, Um and people can do, uh, can and should do that if, 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 you know, they have it within their means. Uh, look, I do think there's some things the Trump administration, uh, can and should do. For one thing, you know, Trump said he was basically, uh, uh, convinced uh, to do those missile strikes into Syria because of the images of all those dead kids. Uh, Well, guess what? Uh, There are thousands and thousands and thousands of other kids just like that who are trying to flee Syria, the same types of refugees that Trump is trying to block uh, from coming into this country, Uh, that countries like Canada have so generously uh, let in, and and that the Obama administration uh, was trying to increase uh, the number of Syrian refugees that could get into this country. So instead of creating this phony security rationale for the travel ban and the Refugee ban, uh, you know, Trump could be, you know, a human being and and a compassionate one and let these folks in. That's one thing uh, he could do. The other thing he could do is not make proposals to slash uh, the budgets of the State Department and USAID by a third, uh, which will make it much more difficult for us to address uh, humanitarian uh, issues like this, not only in Syria, but in Africa and a whole bunch of other places. The very last point is, I I do think they have a diplomatic opportunity this week. You know, Rex Tillerson gets on a plane uh, tomorrow uh, to head to Moscow for meetings uh, on Wednesday. Uh, and they have a moment where this strike provides a little bit of leverage. Uh, but what they have to have is a strategy and a plan to figure out if there's a diplomatic path forward that uh, Russia can live with and they can get Assad to accept. And if they're not willing to go all the way, uh, to pressuring uh, Assad to the brink of defeat, which I do not think that they are willing to do, then they are probably going to have to look for a face saving way out and maybe that means basically taking the facts on the ground in Syria now, where the country is kind of broken up into about half a dozen different uh, segments that are kind of have you know, the influence of certain opposition groups and external actors, trying to use that as a foundation for a ceasefire that 's enforced by all the external parties, and then maybe driving to a political solution that, that doesn 't immediately remove Assad but at least fuses power away from Damascus and gives people in opposition areas a lot more control over their fate. Even that might not work, but I think that's the type of creative solutions they should be thinking about right now.
0: Colin, I really wish you were still in government working on this stuff. Thank you for that very sobering, honest, nonpartisan take on what happened, how we got here, and, and what could be done moving forward, man. I really appreciate it. And everyone should read your op-ed in the Washington Post. I'll tweet out the link later today because it was really a thoughtful explanation of all the risks involved here.
1: Sure. Good to be with you.
0: All right. Thanks, buddy. Talk to you soon.